Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians today. We're going to be finishing up the, the book of Ephesians, just the last few verses there in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, you know, when you, you get into some of these personal greetings and things that are usually at the beginning and, and the end of the epistles, they often are not the, the verses people think of, um, you know, when they think of, of learning biblical doctrine. But what they often do is they provide great examples of the application of doctrine. Uh, here in Ephesians chapter 6, you see Paul there asking for prayer in, in uh, verse 19, that they would pray for him, that he would open his mouth boldly. He describes his ambassadorship in verse 20. And, and verses 21 to the end then are just sort of the, the ending of the epistle. He uh, says in verse 21, that, But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Now, he mentions there a man named Tychicus, and he calls him a brother and a faithful minister. In fact, there are several places where Paul refers to Tychicus as a faithful minister. And uh, if you consider the, you know, the great honor of having your name recorded in Scripture, but not only to have the name recorded there, but to have the Scripture say of this man that he was a faithful minister, um, it, it you know, demonstrates something about the man. Paul talks about a lot of other people that were not necessarily faithful ministers, even though they, they maybe were believers, uh, brothers, but were not necessarily faithful ministers. But Tychicus is somebody he calls a faithful minister. And Tychicus is somebody you, you don't necessarily, when you think of the people that worked with Paul, you think of Timothy maybe and Titus and those that he writes those letters to. Um, maybe you think of Barnabas or uh, John Mark or, or some of those kinds of people, Luke even. But very rarely would you think of Tychicus. And, and yet Paul describes him here as that faithful minister. Let's go back in the book of Acts. Go back to Acts chapter 20. Um, actually go to Acts 19. Remember that this epistle that we're finishing up is the epistle to the Ephesians. And uh, there were some things that happened here at Ephesus. Let's start in verse 23 of Acts 19. Paul came there to, to Ephesus, and he stayed there for a while. And this would be when this church at Ephesus was founded, is here in Acts chapter 19. It says in verse 23, "...in the same time there arose no small stir about that way." For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands." 
so that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Now, uh, here this Demetrius the silversmith uh, he's concerned because as the message of, of God's grace and the message of God's word is going out in Ephesus, people are turning away from the false gods. They're turning away from this goddess Diana who had this, this uh, great temple there at Ephesus. And he's not so much worried about people turning away from religion as he is about his pocketbook. Because if people don't keep you know, coming to him, what he does is he makes these little religious things that people would have in their home, and that's how he makes his living. And so if people are turning to the one true God, and they're, they're worshiping uh, God the Father and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, they aren't going to come and buy those things from him anymore. And so he sees a need to do something. He starts to stir people up about what's going on, and um, he, he gets together these other craftsmen, and he says, our craft is going to be set at naught, but not only that, the, the temple of Diana of the Ephesians is going to be despised. Um, this Diana of the Ephesians, by the way, you notice he says, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And Diana of the Ephesians is the, a, a goddess figure. Um, really, it, it goes back, uh, all the way back to the, the Babylonian mystery religion. There, Nimrod there who built the Tower of Babel back in the book of Genesis had a wife named Semiramis. And uh, many of the, the gods in pagan religion are, are fashioned after Nimrod and many of the goddesses are fashioned after Semiramis. And in fact, Diana of the Ephesians, one of the things she's associated with in many of the depictions of her, she's wearing a, a crown that's like a tower on her head that harks back to that Tower of Babel that her husband Nimrod uh, uh, presided over. And this Diana of the Ephesians was known by, by different names in different cultures, but the craftsmen there are right when they say that the whole world worships her. In fact, there are people today that worship someone under a different name. You realize the names change from culture to culture, but there are people today who worship a, a character they call Mary, that they associate with the Mary of the Bible, that really, the way they describe her, more represents Diana of the Ephesians. Okay? And, and they describe there this goddess Diana, and they're worried that the truth is going to cause that religion to come into contempt, but they're more worried that it's going to cost them money because people aren't going to buy their products anymore. And I'll, I'll tell you that there are many things done in the name of Christianity that have no greater motive than what these craftsmen have here. Verse 29, it says, The whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Um, the, uh, you see as those, those people come together there, they see a crowd gathering there at the theater, and a lot of people just come to see what's going on, and they don't really even know why they're, why they're gathered together there. Um, 
verse 33, it says they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew he was a Jew with one voice about, all with one voice about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly, for we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Here you have the, the bureaucrat coming to the rescue, right? He, he says, don't, don't do anything. We've got to go through all the proper forms and procedures and, and those kinds of things. A lot of times that bureaucracy is a bad thing. Here, in this case, it's a good thing because it kind of slowed down. The, the passions of the crowd there. But uh, this, this event here, in fact, it may be uh, in this, the, this event that Paul talks about. Uh, in one place, he talks about how he fought with beasts at Ephesus. And there's nowhere recorded in Scripture where he literally fought with beasts at Ephesus, but he may be referring symbolically to, to uh, this account here. Uh, this was certainly a great struggle that took place at Ephesus with regard to the truth. And it's in the context of these events that that church at Ephesus was formed. And so in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, After the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. Now, Ephesus is in Asia Minor, today what would be called Turkey. Uh, it's it's uh, in that area. Uh, Macedonia is Greece. And so he's going to leave that place. Now, he's already established a church there, this church at Ephesus that he's writing to in our, in our text. Um, but now he's going to leave. And in verse 2, it says, When he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And now notice verse 4, there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus, these going before tarried for us at Troas. And so Tychicus, now it says that Tychicus is from Asia, and it's likely he's from that very city of Ephesus. But when Paul leaves Ephesus, he he goes with Paul. He's willing to, to leave behind whatever he was doing there in Ephesus and to go and help Paul as he's going to go and take the gospel into these other areas. He actually sends them ahead. Um, he sends them ahead to Troas uh, while, he, while he's going to come up later and, and you know, take a slower trip and, and again preach the gospel with people. And Acts 20 goes on to describe then the, uh, the events that happened from there. So, um, so that's where you're first introduced in the Bible to this man of Tychicus. He, he comes out of that Ephesian church, 
probably, probably out of that Ephesian church. And uh, he was with Paul through that persecution at Ephesus, and he goes with him to the work, to, to uh, share the gospel in other places. He's referred to in, in a lot of different places. Um, if you go to, uh, uh, go, go to the book of Colossians, go to Colossians chapter 4. Now, the book of Ephesians and Colossians, as we've gone through Ephesians, I mentioned how they're kind of like sister epistles, and there are many passages in Ephesians that you can cross-reference directly with passages in Colossians. And Ephesians and Colossians were probably written at the same time. In fact, it's, I mean, it's certain they were written at the same time. Remember, Paul is writing these things from prison in Rome. And so he's writing here to the, to the Ephesians and to the Colossians at the same time. And in Colossians chapter 4, uh, verse 7, it says, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. And you see, that's very similar to what he wrote there in Ephesians about Tychicus. Tychicus is the one who's actually going to deliver these letters. They didn't have a, you know, a postal system like we have where you would put something in the mail and somebody working for the government would deliver these things. What they did have was the Romans had a very good road system. And, uh, in fact, roads that, that survive even to today, uh, you, can, you, know, you can go places and see where those Roman roads are still in existence. And some places where the road itself may not be in existence, but you can still see where the road was because these roads were so widely traveled. If you've ever heard the, the expression, all roads lead to Rome, that's a, really a, a historical reference to that road system that the Romans built with the city of Rome being at the center and these roads going out to the farthest reaches of the empire. And so what, what Paul was doing, he would write these letters and he would give them to somebody like Tychicus and he would have the job of taking the letter and delivering it to these churches. Okay? And not only that, you see, he's going to come and, and know their estate. He's going to figure out what's going on in Ephesus and come back and report to Paul about what's going on there. Uh, you can go as, as well to, um, go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's another letter that's written close to the same time, a little bit later. Uh, here, is, as uh, Paul is making his closing comments and greetings at the end of his letter to Timothy, uh, you notice he, he mentions, for instance, in uh, verse 10, he says, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia, he says, only Luke is with me. Take Mark, that's that John Mark that I mentioned earlier. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Mark, who had been unprofitable previously, had become profitable in the ministry. And he says, Antichicus have I sent to Ephesus. Now, what had happened, see, is he had sent Tychicus with these letters to Ephesus, and Tychicus hadn't made his way back to Rome yet. And so here Paul is in, in 2 Timothy referring to that, uh, saying that he had, he had sent him there. Go to one more um, reference here to Tychicus. Go to Titus. Titus chapter 3, 
Verse 12, he says, When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. He says, Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. Uh, you see that you get the idea here that Tychicus was somebody that Paul could send him out somewhere and he could trust him to go there. And here he, he says, I'm going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you. And when I do that, you know, you come to Nicopolis, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend the winter there. Um, and, and this was somebody Paul could count on. He could count on him to go to these places and do the thing that he had for him to do. Now, if we go back to our text there in Ephesians, in fact, it's, it's likely that Tychicus uh, is possibly even the, the, the technical term is amanuensis or the secretary that actually writes out this letter to the Ephesians. You know, uh, most of these letters, Paul didn't sit down in his jail cell and write it out with his, with his own hand. Some of them he did. Galatians, he, he says there that he wrote that with his own hand. But he would have a, a secretary that he would dictate to and they would write it out. Uh, we don't know that specifically here, but it's at least a possibility that, uh, that Tychicus is actually the one writing out the letter, and then he's certainly the one that's carrying the letter to, to the church. And, you know, the, when, you, when you study what the Bible means when it talks about inspiration and how the Scripture is inspired, and, you know, there's a lot of different theories out there about how inspiration worked and, and, you know, what it is. Of course, when the Bible uses the word inspired, it doesn't use it the way that people might use it today. You know, today a, a poet might say that they were inspired to write a certain poem or, or uh, somebody may say they were inspired to write a song or, or something like that. That's not the way the Bible uses the term. When people use the term that way, they kind of mean sort of a, a feeling came over them and, and you know, they just wrote out of that feeling or whatever. Uh, and they're really talking more about something that comes from themselves, uh, even, though, even though some of them would claim, you know, that this was something that didn't come from themselves. But uh, there are, especially within the, the New Age movement, you know, people who claim that spirits will inspire them to, to do different things and, and that kind of thing. But when the Scripture talks about inspiration, it's talking a, about a process by which God is, is putting his word down on the page. Okay? And it wasn't just a feeling that came over these men. Uh, what, what Peter writes is he said that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And, you know, when it says they were moved by the Holy Ghost, it's, a, it's an interesting word choice there. The, uh, the word that's used is also translated in other places to refer to the way that wind pushes a ship. You know, the wind fills the sails of that ship and it pushes it along. And that's the word it uses to describe how these men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost. Um, some, some people think that, you know, the, the Holy Spirit just kind of gave them a general idea and they did their best to put into words what, you know, what they felt the Holy Spirit was saying to them. But... When you look at what the scripture says about inspiration, it, uh, it gives us a, a very different picture than that. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, the reason I bring this up is because uh, some people have questioned, for instance, in these cases when Paul is writing a letter but it's being written by a secretary, what if there was a, a mistake between the time Paul was inspired and the time he 
told it to the secretary? What if the secretary wrote it down wrong? Is it possible that we're missing parts of the word of God or that things have been changed because that inspiration that Paul had didn't carry on to, to uh, the, the secretary who put it down on the page? But notice what, the, what it says here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about inspiration. It says in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, I want you to notice when it says all scripture is given by inspiration, scripture is a very specific thing. We, we use the word scripture just, you know, in general to mean the Bible. And the Bible is scripture because it is the written word of God. Scripture is something that is written. All right. There were many things, for instance, that the prophets said, that they said verbally that didn't get written down. That's not scripture. It may still be it may, it may still be the word of God, but it's not scripture. This verse is talking specifically about what's written down. Uh, in the, the Greek, the word is graphe, and, and we get the word graph from that. You know, when you see the word graph in a, in a word, it means some kind of writing, okay? And uh, it says, the, the verse literally says, in the Greek, it says, pas graphe theonoustos, which means all scripture is breathed by God. Uh, that's what inspiration means as well, by the way. It means breathed by God. Um, and it's saying the scripture is given by inspiration of God. So inspiration isn't just about the, the man. It's not just about, for instance, Paul being inspired, but it's God using that whole process to make sure that what's put down on the page is what was inspired. You see? Then from there, that that scripture that's put out on the page can be copied and, and sent out and we have the scripture here today in our in our own language um, in fact by the way if you look up a, a few verses before that um, look at uh, you're in second timothy 3 look at verse 14 Paul writes to Timothy, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, understand that, that inspiration does not just apply to that first original uh, writing that was written down. Because when... When Paul says to Timothy that from a child he had known the Holy Scriptures. Now he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. Timothy, Timothy's uh, mother was a Jewess. His father was a Gentile. Uh, but his mother and his grandmother taught him the Scriptures. That would be the Old Testament Scriptures. Now they didn't have what Moses wrote down. They didn't have what the prophets wrote down, what David wrote down. They didn't have that. They had copies of it. And yet he calls it Scripture. Right? He, says, he says, from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. And then he says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Because God was going to preserve that inspired Scripture through copies. That's what they had. They had copies of it. They had, they had copies of it that had been copied out diligently by scribes who took, took every, every care they could to make sure that no errors were introduced into the text. And that's called Scripture right along with what, what 
you know, the original that would have been inspired. And so these objections sometimes that people bring up and, and kind of things they do to try and cast doubt on the Word of God, when you really see what, what the Word of God says about how God was working in that process of inspiration to, to bring about the Scriptures, you see that those arguments fall flat. And so you need not worry about that. Uh, if we go back to our, to our text there, so, so this, this Tychicus... Um, Again, it doesn't say it directly, but possibly he could have even been the one who wrote out the letter. He carries it there to Ephesus. And you see that he's going to, to go there at the end of verse 21. It says that he shall make known to you all things. Realize that everything that Paul had to tell the Ephesians is not recorded in Scripture. Right? There, you, know, you do have some personal greetings and things here, but even those are recorded there because they're inspired by God. Um, there were other, you know, personal greetings and other things that Paul wanted to, to relate to the Ephesians, but they weren't scripture. And he says, Tychicus is going to make some other things known to you as well, other things that are not scripture. He probably was going to tell them a lot about what Paul's personal state was and how he was doing there in the prison and, and his condition and those kinds of things, maybe some needs that he had. Um, he was going to make known to them these things. And in verse 22, he, he says that he, he sent them, he sent Tychicus there for that same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Because these Ephesians certainly have great care for the Apostle Paul. He's going to relate to them what's going on with him and, uh, and to comfort their hearts. And, and think about what a comfort it would have been for these Ephesians to have somebody who had been there with Paul at Rome. These, these people, you know, by and large, would have never even been to Rome, much less to, to see Paul there. Uh, here in, in, uh, in the book of Ephesians, this is several years after Paul left that place at Ephesus. He did stop there briefly on his way to Rome um, as, he was, as he was going from... Uh, from Caesarea to Rome under guard. One of the places they went through was Ephesus. And he did, at the end of the book of Acts there, meet with those elders at Ephesus and encourage them. But uh, the, you know, they had, the communication that they had was unprecedented for the day and that you could send out a letter and have it actually get there. But nothing like we're used to today. I mean, you think about how much, even, even just in the last few years, communication has changed. Here are these people, they know Paul's gone to Rome and probably get, you know, get word once in a while from people going back and forth. But to receive a, a letter like this and a messenger that's going to be able to fill them in on everything that's been going on would have been a great comfort to them. And that, that he would be able to, to come there and assure them uh, that the word of God was continuing to go out. Paul talks about how he was bound, but he says the word of God is not bound. And, and even there, uh, whether he was in his own hired house or even in the jail cell, the word of God was going out. And uh, uh, this, this letter represents that, not only just Paul's preaching going out, but here's scripture itself still being written and being sent out. And in verse 23 then, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23, he says, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says in verse 24, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And Paul begins all of his epistles with grace and, and peace. Okay, that's how he begins all the epistles. And you realize that's what God is extending today. Uh, God is not, when in the book of Revelation, 
when the Lord Jesus Christ returns on a white horse, it says he comes to judge and make war. What's the opposite of judgment and war? It's grace and peace. See, God's not at war today with the world. There will come a day when he is at war with the world, when he will come to judge and make war. But today in this dispensation of grace, God's extending grace and peace to the world. And here, especially to the brethren, that's who Paul's addressing uh, specifically here, that we are at peace with God. In fact, that's been one of the things Paul emphasized in the book of Ephesians as we've studied the book, is that peace that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he just reminds them of that there at the end of this letter. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul talks about grace and peace, the way some people explain it, and if you read a lot of commentaries, they'll explain, especially at the beginning of Paul's epistles, when he says grace and peace, they'll say that... uh, Peace or shalom is the Hebrew greeting and that that grace is the Gentile greeting. But this isn't a, a greeting from Paul. Paul is expressing the attitude of God the Father. See, he by inspiration is speaking for God the Father. He's not saying peace from me as in a personal greeting. He's saying peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, a, what an amazing thing that we, who by nature are God's enemies could be at peace with God. And so at the very end of the epistle, Paul reminds them of that, that that God is extending, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are extending peace to the brethren and love with faith. And he says, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.